0: Welcome back to another episode of Digital Business Models Podcast, produced by 4 Week MBA. In this session, I interview Robin Wigglesworth, who is a Financial Times Global Finance correspondent based in Oslo, Norway. He focuses on the biggest trends reshaping markets, investing and finance, with a particular focus and emphasis on technological disruption and quantitative investing. The topic of this discussion is the book called Trillions, which he wrote, which is an incredible research into the world of passive investing. So this is way more than the story of the Index Fund, This is the story of how passive investing evolved in the last century to actually create one of the most important financial innovations of our time and to actually reshape entire, an entire industry, an entire market, which now is worth trillions and trillions of dollars. So let's get to it. Robin, thanks for, for joining this conversation. It's, it's a pleasure to have you for this session.
1: No, thanks, Janara. I really appreciate the invitation.
0: Absolutely. And uh, you wrote a book uh, which is about uh, the index fund, but in reality, it's uh, way more than that. It's like uh, more about the whole history of uh, passive uh, investing. Before we get to the to the main topic of the book and try to reconstruct a little bit of the the history behind it, how did you get to cover it? How did you get to to write the book about uh, this topic in the first place? Uh,
1: So I'm a journalist at the Financial Times, that's my day job. And between 2015 and 2019, I was the U.S. markets editor at the FT in New York. And the way that the FT is set up, we, we can't cover everything that happens around the world all the time. So we have to be a bit more like special forces. We have to be very focused in where we, we spend our effort. And for me, the rise of passive investing was just such a, an incredible story that was undertold because it doesn't have many of the other personalities that we know in, in banking. So there is no Jamie Dimon of index funds. There's no Ken Griffin of index funds because there are essentially just algorithms that buy all the stocks or bonds in an index, mm. but it was huge. So uh, it, now it's $20 trillion, $20 trillion wow. in index funds. That's more than the combined hedge fund, private equity and venture capital industries, twice mm. that actually. So if you take all the venture capital hedge fund and private equity industries, double the size of them, and they still wouldn't be as big as index funds. Hmm. So the more I, I realized the enormity of this and saw these of many ways was changing the, the wiring of financial markets, I, I felt it, it deserved a book to explain how this revolution happened and what it means.
0: Yeah, and for a little bit of context, 20 trillion is actually larger than the US uh, GDP, I guess. It's probably the, the US GDP, it's like 17, 18 trillion or something something like that. Uh, so it's, it's a huge industry, but uh, you also found a way to tell the story. And as you said, passive investing is about algorithms more than people, but you instead uh, managed to tell the story in, in your book, Trillions, in a way that makes it uh, very, very compelling. So can we go through a little bit uh, Uh, through the days, the early days of uh, index uh, passive investing, how did it build up as an industry and how was the index fund
1: born? Yeah, no, I, I wanted to write it almost as if it was a movie script, right? I think people are interesting anyway, and I think narratives help us understand complex Developments that otherwise would be hard to grasp, and doing it through the prism of people just makes it more digestible. now I start the story uh, with Louis Bachelier, a nineteenth-century French mathematician who died in obscurity, but is arguably today the father of financial economics. The entire field of financial economics starts with Louis Bachelier, and a lot of his work that wasn't recognized until long after he passed away was a foundation stone for what became known in the 60s or 50s and 60s as the, the random walk theory of how stocks moved around and eventually efficient markets. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are many people that don't think markets are efficient. And I have some sympathy with that, but that was absolutely pivotal in why the first index funds were invented. So index funds work, whether you think markets are efficient or not, uh, but the first-generation first, some first generation index funds were based on that idea. And that's why I think Louis Beccellier is rightly considered the godfather of passive investing.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, how how uh, the story of uh, index fund, especially before we head to, to index fund in the first place, how did this whole uh, conflict uh, between uh, uh, active investing and passive investing came along? I mean, what were some of the key years? And um, when it really came through this idea that passive investing would actually become something in the first place.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole idea of active versus passive just didn't exist for centuries of investing. Uh, Ironically, the very first uh, pooled investment vehicle, the first kind of mutual fund, was kind of an index fund, or it it was a passive fund. It was a bond in the Netherlands that basically bought lots of bonds, and physical paper bonds and locked them in the chest for 20 years. Uh, And, you know, that was a passive investment vehicle before anybody ever talked about the idea. But for for a long time, it was, you know, the way you invested was either if you were very wealthy, you invested on your own, maybe through a stockbroker, or you gave your money to a professional. So an investment trust or later a mutual fund manager. Uh, It was only, you know, And every time markets had a big setback, such as the South Sea bubble, or the panic of 1907 and and the Great Depression, you know, people realized that even the professionals quite often did a very bad job. Even the ones that had done well in the boom years inevitably did even worse in the the bad years. But nobody was really able to prove it quantitatively properly until the 1960s, because of the error of the computer. Mm -hmm. so for the first time computers started cropping up on wall street and people started to use them to actually crunch the data first manually collect all the data on stock prices from newspapers and see how well average mutual fund managers or pension fund trustees and so on did against the broader market and Mm -hmm. lo and behold they did abysmally but at the time um the answer was always, well, you can't buy the market average. So good luck. You can say that we don't do that well, but you can't, there is no alternative. And that's why the index fund was born in 1971 because people wanted to give investors an alternative.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and uh, there was also a technical issue, I guess. Of course, as you pointed out, there are two key points to highlight. First of all, before uh, you could have computers to track the data and actually have a, a, a study that uh, would show uh, back, uh, you know, uh, looking back uh, of, uh, of decades, whether stocks were performing uh, better compared to other main markets like bonds. I mean, it's also mm-hmm. worth to remember that, you know, now we give it for granted, but there has been a time where even stocks were not uh, like the, the main investing uh, or like the main asset class. For, for for investors. So, of course, as you said, one was the availability of data and the ability to actually analyze that data and actually put it together in the first place. And therefore, as you mentioned, computers definitely helped along the way. And the second point, I think it's very important to stress out, which is it was very hard to, to uh, have a an effective passive investing strategy, because I guess it was very hard also to have a diversified portfolio so much so that it could be effective against like active investing. Meaning in order for you to also be effective uh, uh, in a passive investing, you have to have a very large allocation, very large uh, portfolio location. Uh, mm. So I guess there was something extremely, extremely hard and challenging to do from a technical standpoint. So definitely we needed some technologies that we were missing back then at every computer. Computers helped, uh, not just in terms of analyzing the data, but also in, uh, in, in I guess, in asset allocation, right? I mean, um, are those like good points to, to emphasize or do you think there is more to say about uh, how passive investing uh, became uh, more mainstream compared to, to, to uh, active investing?
1: No, I, I think that's spot on. I mean, one of the, the other heroes in the book is, is a guy called Harry Markowitz, and he was an economist who you know actually didn't have that much interest in finance investing but happened to write his phd thesis on sort of the optimal uh portfolio allocation so he realized well obviously you want to measure you need to kind of if you take more risk then you should expect more return and so forth and you know, he used volatility as a proxy for risk, which showed that, you know, by more diversification, by putting in a lot of different securities, as long as they move independently of each other, the overall riskiness of the portfolio fell. And, you know, that is a foundation stone for how big institutions still manage money. That's why they have a bit of money in stocks, a bit of money in emerging markets, a bit of money in hedge funds or private equity and venture capital. Hopefully the idea is that, over time some of these things might be very risky but as long as one does well whilst the others do badly or vice versa uh, then over time you should have a better more balanced portfolio Mm -hmm. and it was his protege uh, Bill Sharp and ironically both of them won Nobel Prizes in economics for this work that showed that the optimal trade-off for the stock market or for the market as a whole between risk and reward was the entire market that was the optimal amount of diversification and that's obviously a foundation stone for, for past investing. So Bill Sharp never talked about an index fund. He talked about the market portfolio. And the, the Greek letter he assigned to basically denote the market's returns was beta, that today is lingua franca in the investment industry for the overall market return. So passive investing is what people sometimes call it for to be mean. Index funds is quite often what people inside the industry like to call it. Or if they're being fancy, it's the beta return.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, like sharp uh, really um, enhanced the, the the work of uh, of Markowitz, and as you as you mentioned, uh, he built those those uh, two key measures. On on one side was uh, the beta. And on either side, the other side, the capital asset pricing model where the beta yeah. is one of the, the, the key components, which is plugged into the model to actually uh, com- compute uh, pretty much, do a financial modeling of uh, the, the value of uh, stocks in the in the first place, but I think there is an interesting aspect that you also mentioned in the in the book. That, of course, those are uh, very important inventions, especially from from a physio- philosophical philosophical standpoint. So to make the shift between active and passive investing, but also that when we finally see the first index funds to to build up over time, the mechanisms behind those funds actually were. Also, way more simple. They were actually simpler than just using complex uh, financial metrics, um, you know, b- behind them, right? I mean, it was more like a technical challenge, as we said, to have uh, a fund which would be large enough and also have, uh, uh, you know, the the right uh, and allocation to to make it valuable in uh, in the marketplace in the in you know in the first place. But what were some of the initial players that managed to uh, to uh, technically? Put together an index fund?
1: Well, there were essentially three people that kind of got to the promised land at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they all have different claims for being the very first index fund. Um, one was Dean LeBaron uh, at Battery March in Boston. He's this really crazy, zany, outgoing guy uh, who, you know, he was not an efficient market zealot. But he realized that a lot of clients were going in to him and saying, we essentially want a low turnover, very diversified bunch of U.S. blue chip stocks. And he realized what they were kind of describing was the S&P 500 index. So he said, well, I'll just engineer that. It's just an engineering challenge. We'll sell that as a, at a low cost, as a separately managed accounts. And he did this and he started doing this in the in the 1970, uh, right at the start of 1973. <laughs> Uh, but he didn't actually get a single client until the last day of 1973 that the money arrived in early 1974. Um, There was another guy called Rex Sinkfield at the American National Bank of Chicago, and he was an efficient market zealot. He believed deeply and still believes deeply in it. He was a protege of Gene Farmer, the father of efficient markets at Chicago, uh, and he created an index fund uh, because he believed that markets couldn't be beaten. Uh, and he did it by basically converting an existing SM, uh, basically S&P 500 active fund managed by the American uh, National Bank of Chicago into an index fund. So it basically just told um, investors that the, the object uh, hadn't changed. They were still trying to deliver good returns to clients, but how they would do so had changed and nobody really objected. And that was uh, in mid-1973. Mm-hmm. But two years before that, and this is why I think this is the first index fund, uh, John Mac McQuown at Wells Fargo and some of his colleagues like Jim Burton, Bill Faust, launched what was the first passive investment vehicle. It was not a fund or a classic fund. It was a separately managed account that managed $6 million on behalf of the Samsonite pension plan. So the luggage maker, played a a small but pivotal role here. And that tracked all the stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, And it had tried to aim for an equal dollar amount in each of them. Uh, Now, that fund, first of all, it wasn't actually a fund. And logistically, the rebalancing that they had to do all the time to try and keep the dollar exposure constant across the stocks was monumentally big. And it just turned into be a massive nightmare. And eventually it got converted into an S&P 500 index fund a few years later. Hmm. So that's why, you know, depending on how you define it, different people can claim to have got there. But yeah. in my eyes, the, the real, kind of the original index fund, passive investment vehicle, was the Samsonite account managed by Wells Fargo that went live in July 1971.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely uh, like a uh, very interesting story. A couple of points that I want to emphasize from uh, what you were saying. Uh, number one, of course, uh, building up a successful index fund turned out to be uh, like very hard engineering problem. So, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right? so it was uh, really, it turned out to be like a, a mess. Like it wasn't just a theoretical problem, it was just how do we, actually build this thing from an engineering standpoint and then on the other side um also we uh, it wasn't yet the time where because we give for granted today like main uh, indexes uh, like you know the S&P the Nasdaq or all the other main indexes that we have and so for instance today i guess it's also probably simpler um probably technically to just plug um, some some index funds to the main indexes but at the time we I guess we didn't even add them, right? I mean, um, how did it work at the time? For, for a little bit of context, because otherwise it's very hard to understand how difficult it was technically to, to build such an index fund. And also last point, how, how um, was that con- conceived to, to Wells Fargo, which I guess at the time was not like a major bank? No, so, I mean, to take that last point, I think it's, it's fascinating that,
1: you know, it, it's a truism, but big companies don't like disrupting themselves. And when we see this again and again and again. And, and sort of the mental model I've always used for index funds is that they're almost like a, a new technology, like electric cars or, or Netflix in the era or, or Blockbuster. And, you know, other companies might have danced around the idea or realized this might be a good idea. But, you know, it's just very hard to do that um, if you're a big incumbent. Wells Fargo of in the 60s and 70s, when Mac was working there, was not the Wells Fargo of today. It was a tiny pissant regional bank of no significance, really. There were all sorts of rules and regulations that prevented banks from becoming some of the, the national behemoths that we know today. So I think the fact that because Wells Fargo was so small... Because the American National Bank of Chicago was so small, because Battery Much was a startup asset management firm, that allowed them. That was one of the things that made them willing to do this. There's no coincidence that a Wells, a Fidelity, or a State Street at the time, you know, Bankers Trust didn't do anything like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the the I mean the actual logistical um, work needed to set up index funds. Uh, it was huge. I mean, today, this is kind of stuff that is quite literally sold for free or close to free um, by Fidelity or Charles Schwab or Vanguard. Uh, and it's basically almost like the simplest, dumbest form of investment algorithm you can imagine. Just basically buy all the stocks according to the weighting in the SP 500 index. Uh, but at the time, there was no electronic trading. Like Portfolio analysis, it would take hours to run through portfolio analysis on these big, hulking IBM mainframes. Uh, the data wasn't collected. It wasn't electronic. You had to literally collect the data from old copies of Barron's in their archives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I have to admit, I knew intuitively like how much hard work it must have been. But actually talking to the people involved today and for my book, I was kind of, I was taken aback and I thought, bloody hell, I wouldn't have been bothered to do that if I was there. It just sounded incredibly hard work. I mean, the, the first project to really collect a comprehensive database of US security prices uh, was funded by Merrill Lynch and was led by the University of Chicago, something called the, the Center for Research and Security Pricing, or CRISP. And it used, I think it was half a million dollars which was a huge amount of money at that time and took four years to collect all this stuff and clean up the data. And it was on a magnetic spool that stretched for something like four miles. Mm. But that database is kind of the, the Genesis moment for the entire quant revolution that was to come. Cause that was the database that became the raw fuel for not just index funds, though index funds, funds were a huge part of that, but pretty much everything that came since. And CRISP today is still a you know, big data provider for, for investment groups like Vanguard. But yeah, I shudder to think about like how much work there was involved in doing this in the early days before portfolio trading or anything like that.
0: Before we get to some of the, the main players that will come later on, why did they bother in the first place? I mean, what was the main driver behind building such a, uh, you know, um, Huge effort toward building this uh, this uh, index fund.
1: Well, and this is why I think those three pioneers I focus on the, the motivations varied quite a lot, and they still ended up in the same place basically. I mean, for Dean Le Baron at Battery March, he just thought this was something that clients wanted, and he didn't think they should charge a lot of money for it because there was no real management involved. He thought the S P 500, it's a decent shorthand. That's kind of what a lot of people want. Some people want the very sort of growth-oriented investing that he was known for. And a young Jeremy Grantham was working at Battery March as well. He was Dean LeBaron's partner. So they were active managers. They just felt that, you know, a lot of people don't really want active management. They just want something like a big, boring portfolio of diversified big U.S. stocks. Mm-hmm. And that's the S&P 500. It will just basically replicate that. But it was, for them, it was just a pure client demand, and an engineering challenge, and not much more than that. Um, though I think Dean LeBaron, he's quite a kind of a, he's quite a character. I think he quite liked the idea of tweaking the noses of other people in the industry. Like he actually enjoyed. They've got a, a personal kind of um, rise out of that. Mm-hmm. Rex Sinkfield, he's like the classic efficient markets guy. Like he calls himself the ayatollah of efficient markets. He doesn't think that markets can be beaten in the long run. And the reason why he set up an S&P 500 index fund was purely because that it was at those times with those practical constraints, you couldn't trade small caps to small uh, and micro caps at the time. The, the S&P 500 was the cleanest representation, best representation of the entire stock market as a whole. Hmm. So that he chose the S&P 500 as his kind of, Aim that was more that well, this is a, again a good shorthand, but he came to it as an efficient markets guy. I think with Wells Fargo and Mac and some of those people there, some of them were efficient markets believers. I mean, Mac certainly, you know, hero worship Gene Farmer and they've worked together, you know, still work together in the 80s today. Um, but I think they just wanted to research a better way of investing. And they could see the data that the average active manager did a bad job. So they just basically ran the data. And there was people like Maren Scholz and Fisher Black, two absolute rock star economists that both, you know, well, Scholz won the the Nobel Prize and Fisher Black passed away before he could do so for the Fisher Black Scholes model. Mm -hmm. Um, They essentially researched what is the best systematic way of investing. And kind of what they ended up with was an index fund. Uh, But they were fundamentally not efficient market zealots. They were looking at ways, what is the best, cheapest, efficient way of investing? And an index fund just happened to also be the answer they they came across. Hmm. Um, So that's why I kind of think that, you know, quite often people think because of its genesis that index funds and passive investing only works if you believe markets are efficient. Well, no, it doesn't. You can think markets are horrifically inefficient or that they do dumb things all the time, like humans do all the time. But in the long run, the data is pretty irrefutable. The vast majority of investors do far better in passive vehicles in every asset class over any time period in any market. Uh, And that's kind of where all these three people ended up at, though in different ways.
0: Yeah. And I guess, uh, as we see, there, there are also other points that uh, make passive investing uh, more interesting in some areas compared to, to active investing, things uh, you know, as, as we know, when you start uh, um, having a high frequency of investing, of course, uh, most of the profits are eaten up by, by the, the, the cost of, uh, of trading, which also, as you point out in, in yeah. the book at the time, they, they could be pretty, pretty um, high. Oh, huge. I mean, yeah. at the
1: time, that was one of the big things. Like today, it's the management fees. Mm-hmm. It's the cost of professional asset managers, the portfolio managers, the traders, the back office lawyers and compliance staff. And the trading costs are pretty low. I mean, almost zero. But 50 years ago, the trading costs were the real headwind. The more you traded, uh, the worse the returns were, essentially. Yeah. And that's kind of what index funds will also aim to, to try and sort of tackle.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. So as we said, it's not just about the, the you know, going uh, against the efficient market hypothesis is also, you know, trying to create an investment strategy where you don't have uh, the cost structure they usually have in active investing, especially where in active investing, sometimes your whole compounding is eaten up by, by, not only the, the cost of trading, but also by management fees. I mean, there is a whole uh, uh, philosophy of Warren Buffett uh, when he's asked, you know, uh, what's the best way for, you know, average people to invest. And he would always uh, ask for, for decades. as also you highlight in the book that uh, definitely index funds are the best way for, for average people. It's also because, uh, you know, compounding when he's, uh, when, when there are like management fees that are high management fees, those eat up the whole effect of compounding. So therefore, they, they remove the, the most interesting part of uh, investing, what makes investing powerful in the first place. And uh, there, there is also another key point that uh, you highlighted in the book, and it's uh, pretty interesting to me because I'm I, uh, we also covered the story of, uh, of Bell Labs in this uh, podcast series. And there's been a certain time, probably throughout the 70s, where there, there formed also economic incentives uh, toward the index funds. And as you mentioned in the book, there was a time where uh, ATT, which was still a large monopoly in the, in the communication industry, had uh, used uh, you know the, the, the baby bells, who were like regional companies part of the, the Bell system. To, to actually um, invest in, in index funds, right? So yeah. there was also a, a key element. I mean, th- there were some economic incentives that also started to work in favor of, of uh, passive investing. But where are some of the, the key people after that? Because there are a few interesting people and also like a, really a pioneer of the industry. That there's a very interesting story that you tell in the book.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the the baby bells were hugely important and they weren't efficient market zealots. They just were the biggest owners of stocks in the entire United States. And they could kind of see the results were bad and index funds, the results were better. Um, But yeah, after that, and the baby bells were huge, important backers of Battery March, American National Bank of Chicago and Wells Fargo initially. Uh, But I think, you know, for the first few years, you know, this was only... An institutional phenomenon. Like ordinary people didn't even know about this stuff. they started to be, you know, trickle through because of people like Charlie Ellis, who was sort of a fairly well-known uh, investor who wrote a, a paper called "The Loser's Game" that pointed out some of this data that was coming out and how bad it was. And Burton Malkiel, uh, another economist who popularized and brought to the mainstream the idea of, you know, the random walk down wall street is his classic book that's still you know it's in 20th edition now i think it's still an absolute stone cold classic Hmm. but the person that really helped to fire up uh index funds though not immediately crucially um which i thought was fascinating to discover was obviously jack bogle uh he did not invent index funds despite him sometimes you know quite happily letting people take give him credit for it Um, and he only came into index funds almost by accident because he was fired from by his former partners at a company called wellington where you know he led a big active management outfit and in the divorce agreement he was basically set up a, a clerical outfit that would do all the administrative work for wellington and he gave it the grandiose name vanguard and he wanted to do something but there was a lot that they couldn't do So they did index funds with the argument that this wasn't investment management because an index fund was unmanaged, and that was the genesis of Vanguard. So as much as he sometimes later in life would pretend that this was all part of a master plan, you know, it was happenstance that made Jack Bogle, the Jack Bogle we now know today, and Vanguard, this titanic ass management group with well, I think well over $8 trillion worth of assets under management today.
0: Wow. Yeah, and also initially he didn't think, uh, I mean, he, he thought of an index fund as, as a dumb idea, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> what were some of the initial ideas of Bogle? Bog, I mean, how did he change his mind? And there is a theme of the book that I find uh, very interesting. I, I agree on it, uh, which often the s- some uh also revolutionary ideas are the result of some personal conflicts that come along the way, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. No, I think, I mean, this is something I noticed a lot in, in you know, as a journalist as well. When I talk to people that are immensely successful, you know, obviously they have a lot of drive. Hmm. Uh, but quite often there's some sort of personal or professional tragedy or major setback early in their lives that have really taken that drive and is lifted at 20 notches above what most people have and I think for Jack Bogle there was his family background but it was the, the humiliation of being sacked from Wellington so he was you know he was a, a man that came initially was born into wealth his family was a fairly wealthy some Pennsylvania family but they lost their entire fortune in the great depression and the great crash of 29 and his father became an alcoholic and essentially sort of left the family hmm. So they couldn't, so there was that sense of having fallen from wealth to, I mean, they were still comfortable, but they had to work. All the Bogle boys, he had two other brothers, including a twin, they all had to work incredibly hard and they could only afford to send one of them to university. And that was Jack Bogle. And even then he had to work his way through university at, at Princeton. But imagine if you're only one of three brothers, That you, the pressure that puts on you, that we can only send one of you Jack Bogle has the best grade, so he's going to university. So you're working to prove, you know, to earn the trust or repay the trust of your entire family. But he did did work incredibly hard, and he was brilliant. And he was noticed very early on by the the founder of, of Wellington, which was one of the biggest mutual fund companies in America at the time. And he was the wonder boy of the industry. He became one of the youngest junior vice presidents, one of the youngest executive vice presidents, and then ultimately the youngest CEOs of the investment industry at the time, still almost to this day, he would have been considered a wonder boy. Hmm. So he was, like, he was a guy that you know had this drive. Everything he touched turned to gold. Uh, he, yes, he then pseudonymously wrote an article, a paper rubbishing the idea of index funds in 1960 when somebody proposed it. And the world was his oyster. But then he basically made a fateful decision to merge Wellington with a bunch of growth managers in Boston and gave up too much stock to do so. And eventually, when the late late 60s, early 70s bear market happened, you know, the clashing personalities and terrible business, because Wellington did badly in that bear market, meant that basically they ganged up and sacked him. So I think, you know, that just fired him up to just unimaginable levels and gave him the drive that, you know, made him this force of nature and helped turn Vanguard, which could have just been a cushy retirement job, to, like, he decided to turn it into his kind of, the instrument of his revenge against anybody who doubted him uh, and to prove them wrong, that he was brilliant, that he was incredible. And, you know, he succeeded. I mean, beyond even his imagination, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. A, a few key points uh, based on uh, what you said. Uh, so the whole story of ba- Bagul—it's—it's—it's it's, it's very interesting because, of course, as you said, he—he um, he grew up in a in a very uh, tough situation, and actually, his character probably came about also as a contrast a contrast with uh, with his father. I mean, where he saw his father as, as a weak uh, person. He, he was uh, way way stronger and as we'll see he also had uh, many uh, LT issues uh, LT issues over the years. And then on yes. the other side the, the turning point would be when finally there would be this contrast with the, with these partners where Vanguard becomes a way for 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 him to actually say you know I told you so I, I could I, I, I showed you how I could do something uh, extremely valuable in the world without your you know, even do something better than you're doing and um, also another interesting point that you mentioned in the book is that at least i'm not sure if this is a if you find uh, this to be um, real but uh, it, it seems like uh, he didn't know uh, who Markowitz uh, was right i mean he, he started Vanguard from yeah. a position of uh, really uh, i'm gonna do it because i want to uh, give a let's say a kick in the butt to, to my my former partners right I mean I I was the story of the early years no I think um I remember talking
1: to one of his close close friends and former assistants about this who said look this was in the later years of, of Jack Bogle's life and said look why are you trying to erase other people from history I mean your role is so huge and what you've done is so monumental you don't need to do that And I don't think Jack Bogle did it because he was mean-hearted at all. But, you know, we all have certain stories that we tell about ourselves and how we became the person we became. And the reality is always a lot more complicated than even we admit to ourselves. Right. Uh, So I think we all do this. Uh, And Jack Bogle obviously had this incredible canvas on which he could write his life story on. Uh, But yes, he later on in his later years, would say that, oh, well, I didn't know anything about efficient markets. I didn't I didn't heard about Markowitz or Farmer. I was this yokel like this poor boy who worked through for, through Princeton. And, you know, he would kind of downplay his own intellect and pretend that he was just like this simpleton. And Jack Bogle was brilliant and he was incredibly well read. And he was a voracious reader of any investment industry news. And I know for a fact, because I talked to people that met him at the University of Chicago's semi-annual seminars on things like efficient markets and all this jazz. So, you know, he would try to pretend that he came into the index funds almost by, you know, by accident, because he read Paul Samuelson, Mm -hmm. a famous economist that, you know, popularized, helped popularize the idea of index funds. But I didn't know, but he didn't know anything about everything else. And it's. You know, I want to say, you know, I think he that stretches credulity. I just don't think that's very likely. Yeah, uh, um,
0: it's also true that uh, this uh, story told in this way, it's also easier to sell to to, to news, to the media, because uh, yeah. this is the story of the American dream, right? Uh, also, you can make it. If I could make it as a simpleton, as you said, also you could make it. So... Definitely yeah. telling the story in this way would help him actually shape uh, his own legend, right? Yeah, and, and he was a world-class storyteller. And that's a skill that sometimes gets
1: uh, dismissed and the same way, oh, he's just a salesman or he's not a brilliant innovator. But you know, Jack Bogle was a brilliant innovator in many respects. But he was, I think, one of the greatest storytellers the investment world has ever seen up there with Warren Buffett. Hmm. Uh, and that is actually important because he was able to convince people in very simple some messages why this is good. I mean, I dream to be one, you know, basis point as as good a storyteller as Jack Bogle was. He's just phenomenal at this. And that was one of the reasons why indexing really helped take off eventually. Um, but that he a lot of the stuff that he wrote and said about how he came into it, you know, had more to do with, I think. Burnishing the legend of Saint Jack, as he became known, rather than the reality of, of Jack Bogle.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And when can we trace the, the, let's say, the real birth of uh, index funds uh, as we intend uh, this in the modern sense? So, when would really come the, the time, probably, I don't know, like uh, if that's correct, like during the 90s when finally, um, Bogle is uh, it's uh, is able to to really give birth to to the index fund to the really uh, index uh, investing.
1: Um. Yeah, no, I mean it's, it's well you've stumbled across one of my absolutely favorite geeky nerdy subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, so obviously the first index funds, including Vanguard's, use the S P five hundred as the shorthand. Because it was a pretty good reflection of the entire stock market, if you waited by size, you know, today, Apple is more important for the direction of the US stock market than American Airways or Alaska Airways. So, and the S&P 500, because it captures the 500 biggest ish companies in America, it is a pretty good shorthand for the entire US stock market, but it's not perfect. And especially in the economy as dynamic as the U.S., there have always been a lot of smaller companies that, you know, grow quite quickly. Uh, And for a purist of financial economics, like somebody who believes in the theory that underpins this, the S&P 500 is, yes, at best, an imperfect shorthand, and at worst, a very ugly one. So Gus Sorter was one of the people that went into, he was the head of the equity indexing arm um, at uh, Vanguard. This was in the early 90s. And he, he was always keen. He had studied at the University of Chicago and he felt that a true index fund should be the entire market portfolio. So that should be all stocks. Mm-hmm. So he got Jack Bogle's uh, buy-in to finally do this, where they also included you know, small caps and mid caps into one giant index fund that basically invests in all the liquid mainstream stocks in America. And that fund now is, uh, this is 1.2, 1.3 trillion dollars. Just mm-hmm. this one fund would alone be one of the biggest asset management firms on the planet. So it's a huge success. But, you know, one thing I love about this subject is that, you know, if you're a real purist, about so the market portfolio is the way that Sharp envisaged it. The market portfolio is not just stocks. It's also bonds. It's also real estate. It's also commodities. It's everything. And I think that's probably one of the you know, later, sort of the next iterations of the index fund revolution is that we start getting truly multi-asset class passive portfolios that are cheap, simple, and commoditized. and You can buy off the rack, as it were.
0: Yeah, and what would be that, like, um, would, uh, like, the, um, the, the exchange, the traded fund be, be that uh, kind of monster that uh, was envisioned as, as a purist form, or uh, um, what do you think? Or there was, like, already an index fund that represented that vision? Well, I mean,
1: I think uh, today there isn't. I mean, fundamentally... You know, the, my idea, I think the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund is hmm. a, a great example of a one-stop, uh, you know, index fund. And it is, you know, it's super cheap. I think it costs four basis points a year. And because U.S. companies are so global, so it's obviously just U.S. stocks, but you're getting a lot of international economic exposure as well. But, you know, if you're a half-decent financial advisor or... Uh, a standalone investor, you can combine that fund with maybe uh, a Vanguard or a BlackRock bond fund, index fund, and other things. You can cobble together what is essentially a good approximation for the market portfolio as a whole. But I just maybe as an engineering challenge, I quite like the idea that I know people are working on this, but something that combines both public markets, so there's mainstream stocks and bonds um, and real estate and private debt, private equity, the whole works. So that you get, basically you could go in and basically with a click buy a fund that does all the asset allocation for you as well. And mm. reality, there'll have to be some flavors around that because obviously, you know, if if you're 18 years old, you shouldn't be buying the same portfolios if you're 80. Uh, but I think, you know, that's where we're heading that, the The passive investing revolution is going to come to the asset allocation side as well eventually, and it's starting to arguably today.
0: yeah and what are some uh, what are some of the key facts of the the early years of uh, vanguard I mean especially taking the, into account the personal story of Bogle and the, how he had some um, hurt like I mean he, he really um, was going through a transition where the the company at a certain time was supposed to go to, to like uh, the person that it chose to be the uh, successor which was Brennan and then all of a sudden things changed what happened there
1: yeah i mean it's fascinating it was one of the things that you know i talked to a lot of people involved in the clash between jack bogle and his handpicked successor his chosen protégé jack brennan and nobody knows people know the contours of it but nobody really knows what was said between those two because both of them have never said a word publicly about it and even to their friends, um, which, you know, I admire as a person, but as a, a researcher, research my book was a little bit frustrating at least. Mm. Um, but essentially, yeah, so Jack Bogle, you know, was a brilliant strategist, a visionary, and, and, and also a great salesman and a storyteller. Jack Brennan was the yin to his yak. Jack Brennan was the consummate efficiency guy. He was the operation guy. He was the guy that made sure that Vanguard, as it started growing enormously in the 90s, that you know the trains arrived on time that it functioned as an organization. Uh, so I talked to friends of both of them who said, you know, Jack Bogle, Jack Brennan could not have done what Bogle did. Jack Brennan would never be the founder of an organization like Vanguard. But Vanguard would not be today what it is if it had been for Jack Brennan, because he made sure that somebody would implement all of um, Jack Bogle's ideas. And they worked incredibly well together. And they were both incredibly hardworking people. But what happened was that Jack Bogle had a very bad heart. He'd suffered many, many heart attacks. He had a congenital heart defect. And eventually he was such bad shape that, you know, he was still coming to work, but you know, he couldn't walk upstairs. Uh, he was in bad shape. So Jack Bogle transitioned the leadership formally. So Jack Brennan started running the place anyway, and he was formally named Jack Bogle's successor. as Jack Bogle went to get a heart transplant. And there he languished for over 100 days in hospital before he finally got a heart. And people assumed, okay, well, then, you know, maybe he'll come back to be chairman if he feels okay. But, you know, nothing more than that. But yeah. as it turns out, Jack Bogle was invigorated by this heart. He, had, he was fitter than ever, had more energy than ever. So he came back as chairman, but kind of acted like he still was, obviously, the founder who ran the place. And by then, Jack Brennan had been running it for many years. So they ended up clashing more and more. And eventually the board sided with Jack Brennan. And Jack Bogle was, they tried to quietly eject him uh, to be some chairman emeritus, but essentially those two men fought, fell out, which you know, first of all, is tragic for both of them because they used to be so tight, but also for everybody, frankly, around them. It's a divorce that still, you know, kind of shaped Vanguard a little bit in the culture. um You know, the the the, the, the Brethrenites and the the Bogle True Believers, the Bogleheads, um but yeah, I mean, maybe the competition drove them to to great heights. But I, I think it's quite sad that they never made up even before Jack Bogle passed away in twenty
0: nineteen. Hmm. And they never really managed to to uh, to make up. I mean, even no. at the end, like the the last days of, uh, of Bogle.
1: Yeah, many friends tried to to engineer a rapprochement, but they never did.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. All right, so. And um, if we move forward with the, with the story, like um, of course uh, there has been an evolution to to ing- index funds, which uh, is the the uh, exchange uh, traded fund, the ETF. And who was the pioneer there? Well, so that was a guy called Nate Most that
1: you know lots of people in the ETF world know about, but it's kind of unknown outside it. I think it's quite sad because he was a brilliant guy as well. Um, so he was the head of new products at the American Stock Exchange, uh, which today doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and when he was working there in the 80s and 90s, you know, was struggling in competition, getting squeezed by the big board, which is what people call the New York Stock Exchange, the big brother, and the upstart electronic exchange, NASDAQ. So the Amex desperately needed something new to save it, essentially. And Nate Most came up with the idea of tradable index funds, and he actually ironically took the idea to Jack Bogle first and Jack Bogle hated the idea. He thought the idea of people trading index funds was horrific, and although he really got on well with Nate Most, he basically sent them packing. Uh, But then Nate Most took the idea to State Street, and State Street kind of thought it was a cool interesting idea they had by then a pretty vibrant index fund in um, business, mostly for pension plans and and insurance companies and so on. So they came up with this new tradable index fund. It's basically you trade shares in a vehicle. And there's lots of nifty stuff that happens under the hood. Um, It didn't do incredibly well to begin with, but now obviously this is the ascendant form of investing. Mm -hmm. And it's grown beyond index funds and passive investing. I mean that's where most of the money is today. The most actively traded equity security on the planet is the SP 500 ETF Spider. But you know, if you look at the entire world, that's now I think as big as entire classic plain vanilla mutual fund industry, and it's growing far quicker. And people are pack- packaging active stretches up in ETFs as well. So you know, it all sprang from Nate Most. He's the the father of the ETF.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and um, I guess, of course, uh, Bogle uh, didn't see the potential in ETF uh, actually not because he didn't realize that uh, there could be something like uh, huge, just because he thought that philosophically they they went against what he believed was supposed to be like an investing strategy, which was supposed to be like passive investing is about also holding something potentially forever. Um, Not not like trading it every day, uh, which is what uh, like uh, ETF did. Uh, and, and I'm curious to, to hear from you because, uh, of course, when you make the transition between like index funds and the ETF and the cost structure is uh, like uh, very similar to that of uh, index funds, but uh, what makes them uh, successful? I mean, of course, those are flexible uh, instruments, but um, uh, without the, the same kind of uh, commission structure that you also get, for instance, for mutual funds, where I guess salespeople can be rewarded, uh, uh, widely for for the work that uh, they're doing in selling this stuff how did the ETF for instance take off um, is there a way say, was there something that you know helped them to take off in a way that uh, was not expected by players in the industry
1: well you're right that most people weren't incentivized to sell them with commissions or, or load fees mm-hmm. uh, they had, you know disappeared for a lot of index funds so vanguard went no load or no sales commission you know in the 80s um but then you then you're very much dependent on having a your own retail sales force or word of mouth uh etfs didn't really have that because the amex was a stock exchange they just wanted something that would trade on the on the floor you know the market makers uh that worked on the floor quite like this having it to trade and there was lots of cool stuff you could do with it but you know they're not gonna go around selling it to people in the Midwest and State Street kind of thought it was a cool project but they didn't quite I think realize the potential of what they'd invented or helped invent. So yeah they didn't have really the buy-in. Now I think the reason why that was why it didn't really take off immediately. I think the reason why it gradually did is first of all a lot of professional investors could see the use of this. Mm -hmm. So imagine if you're a hedge fund and you just want to make a punt, you think, let's say, um, the stock market's going up next week. You don't want to buy 20 stocks that reflect the entire stock market and pay commissions on those 20 stocks. And maybe something happens to one of the big ones. And then actually you might have gotten the trade right, but still lose money. So you just want to buy the entire exposure. So you can do that through index futures, for example, or options, or through an ETF. An ETF was a pretty clean way of making a trade, expressing a trade very quickly, because you just bought it like a stock. And the same way, if you're a mutual fund manager, maybe if you, you know, I work at Wigglesworth Capital and, you know, Gennaro Institutional Investors gives me a big check of money, let's say $100 million. And I want to invest that pretty quickly Because for every day, I'm sitting on $100 million worth of cash. My performance relative to the market that's generally going up starts getting a little bit worse. The cash is a drag on returns most of the time. So, But obviously, to deploy $100 million in stocks takes quite a lot of time. You want to research. You don't know where you want to do it. So why not buy the entire equity market exposure whilst you wait? Keep some of your money in an ETF like SPIDER. So institutions were the ones that really embrace it first. And then the retail side picked up very quickly afterwards, but especially among financial advisors, because it's so easy for them. You know, buying a mutual fund with a load quite often was a little bit tedious, but an ETF could just be bought like a stock. So especially in the era when like online trading started, you know, by the late 90s started taking off, it was just easy buy that and i think today that's kind of the revolutionary side it's the the distribution is so easy Hmm. in the us etfs have tax advantages that don't exist in europe but i think it's the distribution it's just you know you can go onto an app like charles schwab or td or you know some of the new european ones and you can just buy an index fund or etf for, for zero commission. Yeah. Whilst if you want to invest in a mutual fund, you quite often have to go through a couple of more steps. Um, so I think that's what's really changed it and has really helped ETFs take off in a really big way.
0: And what's next? I mean, uh, uh, what's uh, what is a trend that uh, you're looking at, which is as interesting as ETF, or like it's probably still ETF, the the big uh, deal so far. I mean, is there uh, is there an evolution that you're seeing right now? Like an index fund 3.0,
1: as it were. Hmm. Um, So I I mentioned the idea of asset allocation, that people are getting better at packaging up different things into index funds. I think that's kind of cool. Uh, It appeals to the geek in me, though I don't know how big it's going to be. Uh, I think also uh, direct investing uh, or direct indexing gets often talked about as as some index funds 3.0 this is the idea that you know rather than buying the technology is now so good the computers are so good and trading costs are so low that you can customize the index so rather than buying an index fund of the 500 biggest stocks in the us you might want to buy basically an index fund minus facebook because you hate facebook or minus british airways or american airways if they dumped you from a flight or maybe minus is JP Morgan, because you work at JP Morgan, and you don't want to double your economic risk. So you can kind of do indices with a tweak. You can customize them. And that is growing incredibly quickly, and I think is going to continue to grow. I'm just skeptical that it's ever going to grow to a scale that even is even close to what we see in traditional plain vanilla index funds and, and ETFs. Most because most people want an easy life, and they don't want to sit there and fiddle around with an index. Yeah, uh, I think the real big thing is actually how ETFs have gone far beyond their genesis, their birth as passive index trackers, and now become kind of a, a fund structure that is you know being used for everything, whether it's commodities or active strategies, even the hedge fund strategies can be packaged up into an ETF now, uh, and I think that's going to be really interesting to watch over the next, let's say, ten years or so.
0: Yeah. Interesting, and what's next for you? Are you going to write another book? And if so, what topic or uh, what you're looking for?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm definitely not going to write a book for the next of 12 months. I think this took out a fair bit of me over the pandemic, and I think the family would be very unhappy if I start a new big project. But you know, hopefully, I have another book in me. There's so many interesting, fascinating people and interesting, fascinating subjects in the world of finance that. I don't really feel that well told, right? Like all industries have their jargon and we sort of talk to each other and almost to kind of keep outsiders at bay. But I actually think finance is incredibly important and interesting. And I think a lot of the stuff that people kind of hate about finance, they'd maybe hate a little bit more than maybe they'd hate different things if they understood it better. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I do think there's a lot of stuff I'd like to write. I just need to be, cognizant of you know my kids occasionally wanting to see me and uh, there only being so so many hours in the day
0: yeah and uh hopefully um of course this might turn hopefully into into a movie or series who knows i mean <laughs> uh, one of my favorite series was definitely billions now we're uh, we're uh, missing uh, trillions so who knows
1: yeah exactly well hopefully
0: you know i mean somebody
1: will hopefully option the 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 book a movie whether it ever becomes one i think is going to be very difficult but if you have any good ideas for who should play the different characters then let me know
0: yeah yeah i'm uh again i'm billions one was one one of my favorite series so there are some characters there that i think I would be probably used those for uh <laughs>
1: yes exactly no i mean index fund people there were a lot of geeks but there were some pretty big characters in in the history of index fund as well that i hopefully was able to show
0: absolutely thanks Uh, thanks robin for joining this conversation it was my pleasure no thanks janara i love being on it thank you